Welcome to this week's episode of the Bio Breakdown Podcast, where we break down biological research and concepts for everyday people. On this week's episode, we're speaking with an up-and-coming herpetologist and my good friend, Kenny Anderson. Kenny, please tell us about yourself. Hi, uh, I'm Kenny. I'm originally from Massachusetts, from around Boston, and I know... Chris from WPU, where I did my master's degree. And right now I'm living in Miami doing my PhD at Florida International University. All right, Kenny. Um, so before we talk about what your actual, you know, your research that you've worked on and are going to work on, I always like to talk to people in the, the scientific field kind of like, when did they know that they were going to be a scientist? Yeah. So. <laughs> um, well, I really wanted to be a scientist for like most of my life. Um, like since I was little, I was always enjoyed like running around on the beach looking for crabs, and that's literally what I spent all of my summers doing. I'd go to the beach, I'd go look for crabs and other things crawling around. Um, I ended up volunteering doing some vernal pool certification when I was in like elementary school and I did it throughout until like high school and that really got me into a lot of the kind of biology things that I'm still doing now. So it's, uh, it's interesting, wow. oh sorry, I, I was going to say it's interesting usually uh, high schoolers are the ones that start looking for opportunities to get crabs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so not to cut you off but um, sure. when you were younger like, did you know that you were going to be a scientist or just that you had a passion for science and biology and wildlife? Uh, when I was younger, I wanted to be a scientist, but that's also because my parents are scientists. Ah, okay. That would be a big influence. Oh, I mean that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. So, <clears throat> what path did you take to get to where you are today? Because a big thing is, you know, we want people to understand that anybody can get involved in science, anybody can do science, and there's a path out there for anybody who, you know, puts their mind to it. Um, so w what did you do to make sure you got where you wanted to be? Yeah, so definitely the, I think the first thing I did was really the volunteering, uh, certifying rural pools that I did when I was in like middle and high school. Um, but the first like, kind of real steps were majoring in a science field in college. And um, at one point I emailed one of my professors, just asked if he wanted help in his lab and if I could do research there. And he said yes, and that's what really kind of started my career, so. Did that did the research that you were doing with him, did it spike your interest? Or did it kind of give you like- Oh yeah, definitely. Did it give you also connections uh, to other people? Yeah, Dude. yeah. The research that I was doing with him are, it's very similar to what I'm doing now with my PhD. It's related to chytrid, which is this amphibian fungus. And it really kind of sparked my interest in that, got me really into herpetology, the whole field of herpetology as a whole. Um, yeah. That, that's a big thing. Uh, whenever my students would ask me, you know, like, how do you get involved with research or how did I get to do what I did? Um, I would always say you want to find those research opportunities and like, you know, without annoying your professors, find the one that you want to look or work for and be persistent and asking about opportunities. Um, 
Like, you can annoy them a little bit. Just, like, <laughs> send people emails until someone says yes. Right. If you right. want to do science, that's what you've yeah. really got to do. It shows them that you actually want to do it. Yeah. yeah. You don't want some student that's going to half half acid. Can we question the show? Uh, we, yeah, we, it is an <laughs> educational program. However, real science involves real words, and cursing is part of that. Yeah, this um, is right. <laughs> But that's, that's absolutely true. I know in my experience, um, I've heard professors kind of complain about students in the lab that, you know, maybe their heart wasn't in it or they were just doing it to be there. Um, that's kind of how it was in my undergrad where it was a medical-focused school. There were plenty of students oh, yeah, who... Everyone was pretty bad. Yeah, <laughs> everyone was pretty bad. And just show some interest in ecology and you'll go far. <laughs> right, and you want to... Find those opportunities early in college too, yeah. or even there are some yeah, schools. You can get involved, the better. Yeah, yeah. And you were saying you were even doing stuff in middle school and high school, so that's pretty big. I know there are some programs in like the St. Louis area where high school kids can get involved. Um, yeah, there are tons good. of like kind of nature outdoor programs that like look great when you're talking to one of these professors and like, hey, I like science. Then you have someone to back you up. <laughs> Yeah, so I think it's time we can kind of jump into what your research is that we're going to talk about today. So um, I believe, you know, we were going to talk about the uh, salamanders and soil acidity. So be mm-hmm. before you start on that, can I ask you, uh, yeah. did you want to research this or did it kind of fall into your hands? Was it on your mind before? Specifically this project we're going to talk about? Yeah. Yes. Um, it, it was definitely something I was interested in. Um, I kind of came up with this idea more on my own. It wasn't something that was just given to you, which okay. can vary depending on which lab you're going to. Yes. That's and, cool. like, both ways are have their benefits and drawbacks. Like, if you're just getting a project, it's it's easy, it's laid out, and... I mean, yeah. that... that, that you yeah. your own, you get to really kind of customize it, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. that is awesome. I agree. Um, so, would you give us a little background on your project before we kind of delve into like what you did? Uh, yeah. So, basically, I think the most important background for my project is to tell you guys about why salamanders are important. Um, and salamanders, just in general, are pretty much mainly found in the U.S. and Europe, and in some parts of Asia. Uh, they're not really much in the southern hemisphere, and North America specifically is a huge hotspot for salamanders. There's a ton of diversity of salamanders here, and they're just really cool. Um, and I'm a big fan of them. And because there's a huge diversity here, and because there's a lot of them here, they're really important for our kind of native ecosystem. And there's this crazy study from this experimental forest called Hubbard Brook up in is New Hampshire, mm-hmm. um, where they were measuring the biomass of salamanders compared to like birds and small mammals. Um, they found that there was actually. Sorry. You got something? Well, I was going to say, uh, could, you, could you tell us what biomass is before we kind of. Yeah. Uh, so, biomass is just biological mass, the mass of living animals. Okay. So, so, like, cumulative mass of all of that kind of animal so it's at not, one time. it's not quantity, but it's, it's uh, not, not the yeah. quantity of the animal, it's, like, the actual mass. It's yeah. not quantity, it's the actual mass. Okay, interesting. Yeah. 
Okay, so, so they, what they found in this forest is that there was more mass of salamanders than there were of both birds and mammals, and they measured birds also at the peak of bird breeding season. So when the most birds are there, you have more mass of salamanders in these forests. Wow. So they a huge component of the forest ecosystem. And because of that, they're really important to it. And um, I can probably talk more later, or do you want me to keep going now about it, or we could just get into what I did? Well, is uh, the, the mass of the salamanders, what percent of that mass? You studied the, the marbled salamander, correct? Yes. My project was specifically on the marbled salamander. And I'm sure uh, the same things apply but, to other salamanders, but does that the, yeah, the mass of that Yeah, all this stuff kind of applies across the board, but one of the really important things about all this diversity of salamanders is we really need more research to understand how all the different species kind of interact together yes. and work differently or the same with all these different environmental features. Okay, okay. So, <clears throat> something that people might have a hard time understanding, um, is the importance of salamanders in the ecosystem just because there's a lot of them and that implies that they're involved in a lot of interactions? Or is there, you know, concrete interactions that we know of um, that can be seen yeah. as important? So the really concrete thing that salamanders do is they act as the top predator in kind of the leaf litter ecosystem. So you have all this leaf litter that's falling from the trees when they drop all their leaves in the fall or whenever. And so leaf litter is actually a really important part of the forest because it's a big store of carbon. And we're storing this carbon, which both is important in terms of like thinking about climate change and storing carbon, which is a big ecosystem function of these forests, the big ecosystem service that it provides us. And it's also a big source of energy for all the other things living in the forest. So there's all this carbon. And when we're talking about carbon and biology, carbon is energy and energy is what we use for everything. So basically there's just this huge source of food in all these leaves that are on the forest floor. And what salamanders do is kind of their main eating, uh, function really, what they're doing is they're eating things that eat leaf litter. So they're a really important control on the decomposition of leaf litter by eating all these insects and things that are shredding up that leaf litter and making it easier for all these different bacteria to break it down even further and just get rid of it. So, there's so there have much... been a ton of studies that have quantitatively shown that when you have salamanders in a plot, the leaf litter keeps more carbon and it holds on to more carbon for longer because you have less of that predation, or not predation, because you have more predation by salamanders and less decomposition by the shredding insect. That's very interesting. So they're pretty much controlling the population of the insects to preserve more yeah. carbon. That's yeah. It's pretty wild. I don't. That, I, I, did not I think the most interesting, but also they're an important food source for things higher up on the food chain. Like things like raccoons love eating salamanders because they're this nice, really nutritious little pack of nutrients. Nice. Awesome. Got my over here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you wanted to kind of investigate um, how human activities might be influencing salamanders and specifically kind of a regionally important activity that we engage in mining yes. yeah so could you you know tell us a little bit 
about the area where this research took place and why it's important to understand how human beings affect salamanders. Yeah. So in, I was doing my research in Kentucky because I was at Western Kentucky University. And so I was really interested in these kind of local issues because as you may have heard, Kentucky is really big into mining. And one of the really important things with mining is that it just completely destroys habitats. And what I want to do in my research is show how we can best recover these habitats to the same function that they had before mining. Because there's all this mined area in Kentucky. It covers like most of the state. Or probably not most of the state, but large areas of the state. And it's really important that we understand exactly what this mining is doing. And so I was really focused on one specific aspect of how mining works, and that's acidification of the soils. Because when you have mining, a lot of time you have sulfuric acid being released, and it makes all the soil more acidic. And it's especially important because when you're having a mining process, you kind of mix around the soil and homogenize it. And then you just spread it back out when you're done, and you're like, yeah, this is good enough, and you plant some trees. And there's a pretty good process going now for getting like the trees back up to where they should be. Mm -hmm. But one of the really kind of big issues that you see with mined areas is that they don't have as much carbon sequestration. So they don't have those nice leaf litter stores that I was talking about earlier that normal forests do. And regardless of whether or not that's actually related to salamanders, which it may not be, it may just be that they're earlier forests. If we have conditions that are beneficial for salamanders, where salamanders can come in and recolonize these sites, then that would theoretically improve these forests' function by retaining some of that carbon store. Right. Now, I know you're not a mining expert, but um, is this soil acidific acidification taking place during the mining process or in the restoration process? Or just kind of all together? I, I think it's just all together. Um, I, I think it's kind of during the mining, you have assets released. And then while you're doing the restoration, you kind of end up getting it spread around. One really big thing in kind of just the Appalachians as a whole, where they're doing a lot of mountaintop mining, is you have these all this like acid runoff coming down streams, which right. is an issue. Yeah. And it's from these mining sites that all of the acid, because it's on a hill, is running downstream into these creeks. Mm -hmm. And so you're having these really sick creeks. Right. So what would, what acidity, uh, like what pH is ideal for salamanders to thrive in, if there is one? So that's really what my research is about for this specific species. Um, I'm looking at a specific life stage and what levels of acidity in the soil are necessary for the species to thrive. Okay. Um, generally, a neutral pH of 7 is what most things are good with and live with. And for my study specifically, I just tested four different pHs. So seven, six, five, and four. Mm -hmm. And four being pretty acidic, whereas seven is neutral. Okay. Before we um, kind of get into your experimental design, could you elaborate? Because you said you tested um, how these affect different life stages or one particular life stage, yeah. actually. Could you talk a little bit about the different life stages of salamanders because that might you know people yeah. people know frogs go through metamorphosis but i think mm -hmm. less people are familiar 
with the salamander life cycle. Yeah, I did not know that they went through a metaphor just <laughs> like that till a couple days ago. So, yeah, salamanders are super cool. Very, uh, pretty similar to frogs. They go through metamorphosis. Um, this specific species is really cool because these marbled salamanders, Amicimo opacum, uh, how they reproduce is they all salamander migrations before reproducing. Normally they're going to vernal pools, which are these ephemeral pools in forests. So basically that just means they're only there part of the year. They okay. fill up with water when the snows melt and then they dry down over the course of the summer. And so while there is water, the salamanders are larvae in these pools. So this specific species breeds during the winter. So Males and females make their migration usually in the fall. They end up in either the late fall or early winter at these sites where there's going to be a vernal pool very soon once the snow melts. Mm-hmm. They breed and then the female will lay her eggs and then kind of sit with them over the winter. So they lay their eggs on the land, completely terrestrially, and then the female sits with them over the whole winter and then once the pool starts to fill up, she leaves. And as the water covers the eggs, that gives them a trigger to hatch. And then all the little salamander larvae pop out. And salamander larvae are really cool. Uh, if you've ever seen an axolotl, they look pretty much just like that. They're, they look basically like salamanders, but they have these big frilly gills coming out from the sides of their head, which they'll resorb once they go through metamorphosis. Wow, sounds pretty awesome. Does, uh, yeah. So it does um, your research and like the mining, does it, um, does the uh, acidity affect the water that they're, they're hatched in as larvae or is, is it uh, just strictly uh, land-based? Yeah, so there are also effects on larvae. Um, part of the reason I decided to do a more land-based study because there's been some research on the effects of acidity on larval amphibians before. So people have actually looked at that like back in the 80s and then there's been a period of like 20 years where there's been barely anything on the effects of acidity okay it was like really trendy in the 80s for a while and then no one now there there's been a couple of people i've seen doing more acidity related stuff acid rain yeah (laughs) yeah back when that was a big thing people were really interested in and then the world started dying and we forgot about acid rain it still yeah, exists. It's so scary. Um, do you have any other questions? Uh, not the, the exact same. Okay. Um, can we move on to? Yeah. So, uh, Kenny, could you please kind of transition into what you did in your experiments, and then why you did those things? Yeah. Sure. Uh, so I was looking at the metamorphs. So basically right when these salamanders come out of the water and are first going on to land. And that's a really important phase for salamanders because salamanders are R-selected, which basically means that they have a whole ton of babies and only a few survive. So there's high mortality of the babies and then low mortality of the adults. So getting out of the pool is very important for salamanders. So because these terrestrial populations, the ones on land, are able to survive for years even if the pool like dries super early or something bad happens and mm-hmm. all the larvae die. So, so you have a year. That, yeah. So as uh, so you're saying the the individuals 
that are uh-huh. more successful or better adapted to the living conditions, they're going to get out of the pool first, right? Barber that survive is your baseline. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. So those are the more successful individuals. Is, does that deal more with more with luck or more just them having better genetics and more skill? Uh, there can be genetics, there can be luck. One really cool thing in some species is, like in tiger salamanders, they're from the same genus, um, but they're kind of bigger. They have this specific larval morph. So some larvae will have an entire physiological cave where they'll get this like giant jaw with these massive teeth and they become specialized to eat their siblings oh. called the cannibal morph. Uh. And so they do like really well because they eat all their siblings, tons of nutrients. A lot of protein. And Making gains. Yeah, lots of protein. <laughs> and then they can get out earlier. Okay, okay. <laughs> Yeah, we yeah. maybe we'll have to figure out somebody who knows about that. Later. Well, it sounds like my life growing up. I got eight siblings. Someone's got it. All right. So, um, yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that I think that's something you know people probably not aware of. Kind of like the race to get out uh, as a strategy um, for yeah, for salamanders. It's, it's a really cool topic. How, how many? Uh, quick interjection. How many? Uh, babies does a uh, female salamander, I assume it's a female salamander, <laughs> we'll, we'll have it at one time. So the marbles, I think they have like 60 to 70 or something like that. It can vary a lot though. And how many of those would you uh, project to make it out of the water? Um, so like to maintain the population, yeah. you need two to make it out. Oh, Over wow. the entire course of that female's life. Oh wow. So, and she'll lay like multiple clutches. Is so that... like just counting them up. If you have one mom, one dad salamander, mm-hmm. when they love each other very much, make it out for the population to be stable. And she'll probably lay like a couple hundred eggs over her lifetime. Okay, um, that's great. Would you say so? How, you know, people have probably heard of like salmon swimming upstream to the same mm-hmm. place where they were born. How loyal yeah. and how reliable is it for the salamanders to kind of go back to the same pond where they were born? Uh, so, a lot of, most salamanders do go back to the same pond where they were born. And I, I'm pretty sure people have done some studies where they found they have some homing ability. So if you like move them around, they'll be able to go back to that same pond. Uh, but there are also some that'll go just disperse, move out to different areas. And that's really important for maintaining genetic diversity among all these different ponds. Because yeah. like amphibians in general have this really interesting population structure where you have all these metapopulations. So you have all these different pools, which are populations, and they have individuals feeding into one another. And it's really interesting. So, so metapopulation is just, you know, like a group, right, of somewhat associated individuals that kind of can trade individuals between the different groups, yeah. right? To, to make mm-hmm. that, you know, less complex. Yeah. Um, when they migrate back to their, their breeding grounds, how, how far of a distance is that usually? Uh, so normally the salamanders don't actually go that far from the pools. Uh, I think normally people have found it between like 200 meters and 100 meters. So they normally stay in a pretty tight range of the vernal pools. And that's why it's really important that we like protect these vernal pools because they are really important habitats 
mm-hmm. for all these salamanders that live around them and a ton of other species yeah. that also are only found in Mm. Yeah, so um, how did you actually test the different pHs? And can you talk about, you know, how you came up with your experimental design and why you chose that design? Because I think, you know, experimental design and the ideas that kind of feed into, you know, how one is developed... We all know the scientific method, you know, we end hypothesis and all of that. We all yeah. know how that works, but, you know, uh, I think people would be interested to hear how somebody designs an experiment and the decisions that go into that. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of my original design was kind of based on what other people have done. So I looked at those older papers about a city and was seeing what they were doing with larvae, and then I was like, okay, I now at least what these metamorphs are doing because they're coming out of the pool they're already vulnerable because they just completely changed up their insides during metamorphosis and there's a lot of mortality mortality associated with metamorphosis anyways so this is a vulnerable stage so if they're going oh shit in fact that maybe they're trying to get out of because the pool is acidic and if they're landing still in something acidic then that could be an even worse situation for these individuals that tried to get out early, are kind of underdeveloped, and not as capable of withstanding this hostile environment. Okay. Well, um, were you saying that the the actual process of metamorphosis is is dangerous to the salamanders, or that they're vulnerable to predation uh, during that that time? Kind of both. It's not that it's metamorphosis isn't really like dangerous to them. It's just stressful because okay. it's like a whole rearrangement of their body. It takes a whole lot of energy, and if they're racing to get out of these pools because if the pool is drying or if the pool is acidic and it's not a good condition, then they're going to have an even lower body condition when they exit the pool. So they'll be maybe malnourished and they won't have the energy to fight off this new acidity. Okay. Um, so you did your experiments in a lab setting. Um, now how did you go through the process of collecting individuals for your study, bringing them into a lab? And then, you know, how did you subject them to your experimental treatments? Yeah. So... Basically, for getting my actual salamanders, I went out, there's, WKU owns a nature preserve, so I went to, I got permission to go to a property kind of adjacent to it, where I knew there were some salamanders in a pool, and I went out, with a bucket, collected a ton of salamanders. I was originally actually looking for spotted salamanders, because um, that's what previous research has been done on, and it would make it easier to compare to that if you just stick with the same species. That's why there's a ton of research on things like zebrafish or (laughs) xenophis frogs. Because it's nice to keep things standard, to understand these things within the context of just one species. Right. (laughs) Am I to believe uh, you also encountered a man with an assault rifle on that property? Oh, God. I did. That wasn't at this time, but... Yeah, that's a pretty good story. Um... Basically, I was going back after I'd done my experiment once the pool had dried because I wanted to get some 
soil around the pool to see what the pH actually was that these salamanders I was looking at were exposed to. So you had a shovel, <laughs> you're digging the hole. Yeah, I had a shovel, a shovel, I dug a hole, I put some dirt in a bag, and then I was walking back to my car, which I had parked kind of along this road right at the edge of the WKU property. And as I got back to my car, there's this big truck that's blocked my car in. And I turn around, and there's this big old Kentucky boy walking down the road with the AR-15 cradled in his arms. And turns out he thought I was a poacher because they'd been hearing reports of poachers in the area, and he was like a volunteer poacher hunter. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing necessarily so, yeah. wrong with that. Yeah, good guy, I'm sure. But, yeah, uh, he's like an all right guy. Just, <laughs> What's in the bag? It was, it was something to come back to. <laughs> so you're digging your own grave, son? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Did he ask you what, what was in the bag? I had to open it up. Yeah, so. I showed him my dirt. <laughs> uh, oh my God. Dirt so one of those science weirdos. <laughs> <Yeah>. All right. <laughs> so you, you got your samples, you got your individuals, and you brought yeah. them uh, back to your illustrious facility yeah. at Western Kentucky University. Brought them back to the lab. Uh, and basically, I raised them in deli cups. Deli cups. Um, so these nice little round cups that a lot of delis use. <laughs> And Mistakes can be made there. <laughs> I will take one deli cup. <laughs> I'm sorry, continue. No, um, but yeah, I raised... So while they were larvae, you gotta separate them out, all of them to individual ones. Because even like on the way back, when I was scooping them out of the bucket, I found one that it looked like it had two heads, because one of them had swallowed the other one all the way up to its neck. Wow. So it's uh, it's an <laughs> intense sibling rivalry. Yeah. Now, they don't have the same, like, mammalian empathy uh, as, as we might. No, no. They lead each other <laughs> in a heartbeat. Well, protein. <laughs> Making gains. Yeah, it's a great source of protein. Yes. So, There's a lot of it. in these <laughs> deli cups, because these are, mm -hmm. like, terrestrial individuals, uh, once they metamorphose, when you're actually exposing yeah. them to the different treatments, how did you set that up? What was your method of exposing them to different um, pHs? Yeah, so the method of exposing them to different pHs was basically I got a, um, you know those kind of like spongy yellow bed mattresses that you like put on top of your bed? Yeah. Got one of those, cut a ton of circles out, and then used all those little circular sponges and saturated it with a solution that was mixed to a certain level of acidity. Okay. And basically, I did some pilot trials beforehand to see how long I could keep that acidity at the level I wanted it. And basically, I just got some sulfuric acid and adjusted this basically water. I raised them in what's called whole fritter solution. Basically, just some water with some different salts in it. Okay. So I adjusted this whole fritter solution to my four different pH treatments. One was unadjusted with approximately pH 7. One was pH 6, one was pH 5, and one was pH 4. Okay. Yeah, and, and I, hmm? I was going to say, you know, we hope this isn't, like, boring for people, but we also know that it's important for people to understand kind of experimental designs and, like, you know, how it all comes together 
to produce yeah. those kind of like BuzzFeed article science, right? Like that's that's not it's it's important, you know, it gets people engaged in science, but there's another level of understanding that's right there for people that actually want it and it's not that hard. So so I have a quick quick, quick question. Yeah. Um, your lowest pH level was four. Yeah. Why not start at three? Is there a reason? So three is like super acidic. Three, I was pretty sure things were not going to go well. Um, okay. Each four is more in a like reasonable range to expect that they might be able to survive it. That but I'll tell sense. you more about that later. And uh, at the top spectrum, uh, seven was your mm-hmm. your your uh, highest, the baseline pH. Yeah, and seven I, was the baseline pH because seven is neutral pH. And then once, once you it, get above seven, you're starting to get basic. Okay. Instead of, and I was not interested in that because I'm interested in the effects of acidification. Okay, so that was not part of, of your yeah. research goal at all. What? Oh, so that, was, that wasn't part of your research goal at all, which doesn't occur in nature yeah. anyway, so. I mean, it does occur in some places where you get things being alkaline or basic um it just wasn't in the scope of my study and i guess that's okay. less less of a worry than something you know acidity is more common in everyday situation nowadays at least yeah i think it is yeah, uh, i don't know a lot of things i think a, a pop culture um, basic is pretty <laughs> <laughs> it's a, one basic salamander there <laughs> so um you want to talk about your results a little bit and you know we don't have to go too into yeah. statistics because statistics <laughs> scares people but we also kind of yeah. want to like mention you know maybe not the specific tests but yeah, yeah. i'll go into it a bit like the kind um, of tests that you chose yeah. and what they let you say yeah uh so just as some clarification before i do the statistics I measured about 100 salamanders, and with those 100 salamanders, because of that pilot thing to see how long the acid lasts, I was changing up the water every three days for them. So just to give everyone an idea of the kind of 80 grit, I spent a lot of time pouring water onto sponges. <laughs> <laughs> Dedication right there. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Can I get the job yeah, done? That's lab work for you. <laughs> can, we can't all milk mice, Kenny. <laughs> Where do I sign up for that job? <laughs> Just joking. Um, yeah, so for my stats, uh, I did what's called growth curve analysis, and I was interested in growth over time. So I was measuring my salamanders every two weeks to get points of growth throughout the course of, I did this for, I think it was like nine months or something. It's in my paper. You can link to it somewhere. We will. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it let me take all these different points along the course of their growth and then chart out a curve. And then it let me use these statistics to make a model. And the models I made included um, different pH variables, it included time, and it included the change in the three different body measurements I made. So I measured the length and the mass of my salamanders. I measured length and term in two different ways. I measured snout vent length. So just kind of standard so measurement for what, amphibians. What is a fence? The vent. Yeah. Oh, vents. Okay. Yeah. So the vent in a salamander is their cloaca. And the cloaca is basically just a catch-all thing 
Um, they use it for reproduction. They use it for excreting waste of both types. Okay. Uh, yeah. Very, very useful. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't have a, yeah. a, a dangly bit or a not dangly yeah. bit. Interesting. Yeah, so one interesting thing about salamander reproduction, the males actually lay what's called spermatophores, and it's basically just like this pyramid of jelly with some sperm on top of it. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of the different species will do like push-ups next to it. They're like, hey, lady, come over here. This is mine. <laughs> You can take this. Come check out mine. I mean, that sounds, that's an average Friday night. <laughs> Are they releasing pheromones while they're doing push-ups? Or just, just like, if the salamander can do 100 push-ups, then it's good? <laughs> <laughs> they, they sit yeah, next to the there are also some pheromones. I don't know that much about it. I'm, I think in Plethodonids, which are a fully terrestrial group, yeah. there are definitely an amount of pheromones. I'm not sure about the um, bistimus, the pollen breeding ones. Yes. Um, Chris? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, your results, the test, the test that you... Yeah, uh, the results. So, basically, the most kind of telling result I found was that F4, all of the salamander died. Page 4 is no good for the salamander metamorphs. So, at, so, if you have marbled salamander... Hmm? You, you cut out a little bit. At pH 4, all the salamanders died? Yes, all the salamanders die at pH four. Oh, rip! So when wow. you have these metamorphs coming out of the pool onto a pH four substrate, they're not going to make it. So okay. That's kind of the most striking result that I got. <laughs> okay. Um, but what I also saw was that at pH five, you have a significant decrease in the total length of the salamanders that you're seeing. So but you're not having a change in mass. Oh, okay. okay. Huh. Yeah, that was a really interesting thing that I have spent a lot of time thinking about and have a lot of different theories about. It is very strange. A, a lot of different hypotheses, Kenny. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they have the same mass, but they're shorter. Can you, can yeah. you tell us about a couple yeah. of your ideas on that? I'm very curious. Yeah, so one of them is the... One of the big things that acidity does, how it physiologically affects amphibians, and also a lot of fish actually, okay. is that it screws up their ability to um, move salts and different kind of nutrients between themselves and their environment. So it makes them use or take in more water in order to dilute the different salts and things that are building up in their body. Okay. But one thing could be is that when you have them on this acid substrate, it's messing up their ability to move these nutrients, and they increase in their kind of water weight. That makes a lot of sense. Ah. Water retention. So that's one possible explanation. So they're, they're taking creatine, basically. <laughs> <laughs> basically. Yeah. Okay, so how did pH 6 and pH 7, were they substantial influences on survival or growth? pH 6 and pH 7 were completely the same. There was no significant difference between them. There was no trend between them. They were pretty much identical. Okay. It was just pH 5 that had that significant decrease in this kind of growth. Okay. So that's and the, I will point out that in terms of mass, there was kind of a trend of change at pH 5, it just wasn't statistically significant. 
Okay. Gotcha. So the, that's the, the the baseline that we want to stay above to to help the ecosystem for salamanders. Correct? What do you mean? Um, oh, so for, for like pH the, 5? Yeah, we want to stay above pH 5 yes. for the mining soils. Yeah, so things that I talk a bit about in my paper was that right now there's the kind of approach to reclaiming these forests post-mining is called the forester reclamation approach. And it's this project that's, or it's this protocol really that's being used in most of Appalachia. And its recommendation for pH is the use of at least pH five substrates when you're kind of reconstituting the environment and we're replowing all that soil back into the system. Okay. So generally, that's going to keep your salamanders alive. It's not going to come. Oh, you, 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 you cut out. You cut, cut out, out a little bit. Kenny. But I mean, what? You cut out a little bit. Uh, okay. You said it's going to keep Where? your salamanders alive. BH five. Yeah. So. The salamanders are going to stay alive, but they're not necessarily going to thrive in those populations because they're going to have re reduced growth, and with reduced growth, you might have less survival of larvae, and if you have less survival of larvae, you also might have less survival of metamorphs, and then you'll have less of these kind of adult populations that buffer out these years of these kind of fluctuation okay. in Makes sense. larval survival. So this is kind of the, the implications of the study, right? That yeah. in these mining operations, there is a set protocol that you know they have to follow um, for the Forest Reclamation Act, right? Um, a reclamation act. Like I'm, I don't think anyone has to follow this. It's just kind of the best uh, practice. Okay. Because I was going to ask you what your faith is in that best practice. Because I know even in situations where yeah. um, things <laughs> things are legislated, like the saguaro cactus in Arizona, uh, when yeah. de when developers come in, they have to move the cactus and um, replant it somewhere else. But if you go to, to any kind of new neighborhood there, they just take all of the cactus, the swirls that were there, and then they clump them all together. And they're basically all on top of each other, and there's no way they can survive. But legally, they've done their job. So, yeah. what what is your faith in the protocol for you know reforming um, these forests after the mining operations? I mean, I think if it's followed, it it should be effective. Like it's my study, I think kind of one of the big things is that my study supports this protocol, and saying, yeah, this is good for these forests. Um, but also, the protocol isn't like, it doesn't fit every situation. So you really need to have people who know what they're doing, because it really depends on what kind of ecosystem you want to build. Because okay. if you want like a ton of pine trees, pine trees like more So if you want pine trees, you don't necessarily need this more neutral soil, because you're not going to find salamanders there anyways, because pine trees, they drop their leaves, and their leaves actually affect the soil and make it more acidic themselves. Right. So it depends really on what you're trying to do. Right. Now, obviously, like, one would hope that they're trying to restore the natural ecosystem in that area. But yeah. I know with a lot of mountaintop removal areas, they just kind of... It, it basically creates, like, a plateau grassland where there once were trees at the top. 
Um, so. Yes. Not great. <laughs> not great. But, like, I, I think that's one of the good things about my study is that it's kind of coming back to this topic that hasn't had much attention in a while. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's especially important now because, like, Scott Pruitt's ruining everything. <laughs> Uh, don't even, we don't even talk about him. Can of worms, really. All right. So, if you could give us any kind of like concluding points on on this study before we move into kind of what you're doing now and what you yeah. hope to see in that. Yeah. So, I think my main concluding point is that pH four is a hard stop for these salamanders of this species specifically. Marbled salamanders will not survive when you have pH 4 substrates because the metamorphs won't be able to get out of the pools. Okay. Do you see, like, one question I came up listening uh, to you was, do you think there are any, like, refugia from that low pH in the ecosystem oh, naturally? Yeah, I think there definitely are. Um, so one really important thing in, like, most amphibian studies is the existence of microhabitats. Right. So if you have like small pockets of areas with high pH and a generally low pH area, then that may be able to sustain these salamanders. But if you have a full area that's low pH and you have these metamorphs, which kind of their their role is to disperse from the ponds, and then they won't be able to disperse very far if they're in a constantly hostile environment and have to just stick to these microhabitats. Right. Which again is what I think is really interesting about studying the metamorphs specifically. Right. And so just just clarification purposes by like refugia and microhabitats, we're, we're talking about small areas, small yeah. pockets within the ecosystem as a whole that are suitable habitat. So you yeah. know, they might have a more suitable pH for salamanders to live in yeah. if they happen to find their way there. Mm-hmm. Are refugia and microhabitat Interchangeable words. Uh, I think within the context that we're we're talking about, but I don't yeah. know how far. I'm talking about it. them as the same thing, but in general, they're not the same thing. Okay. Yeah. Um. So Kenny, where do you find yeah. yourself now, and what is your current uh, research interest? So now I'm at Florida National University, um, and my current research interest is amphibian. Amphibian what? Chytrid fungus. Chytrid fungus. So, what is chytrid fungus? This is something, you know, uh, it got pretty big in media for, for a while, mm-hmm. and then kind of disappeared. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's still around. Well, I mean, I hear about it, but... Yeah, you're, you're a herp guy, right. so you're in, the herp, <laughs> you're in the herp media. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, what, what, is, uh, what, is, what is chytrid and... What are you researching about it, and what what do you hope to find out about chytrid fungus? So, chytrid fungus is an amphibian disease, and it's a fungus, and it's kind of emerged as this really dangerous epidemic disease that's been wiping out amphibian across the planet. Like, it's been really bad in places like Costa Rica and Panama, and also Australia has had a lot of trouble with chytrid. 
and yeah, it's kind of a really big deal. It's this specific fungus called Petrachochytrium dendrobotitis. Jesus. And yeah, long name. <laughs> <laughs> we don't really know where it came from, and we still don't know a lot about how it works and how it's causing these kind of mass outbreaks and how they're killing all these different frogs mainly. It doesn't tend to affect salamanders that much, but there's this new species of chytrid called Batrachochytrium salamandrivorans, which has recently in the past like 10 years or so popped up in Europe. These very similar mass declines of fire salamanders in the Alps. Okay. And you guys may have heard, or listeners may have heard, about this ban on kind of salamander imports. Right. It happened around last year. Yep. And that's great, because basically we're trying to prevent the import of salamanders from Europe specifically carrying this new fungal disease. Because as I was talking about earlier, North America is this huge hotspot for salamanders. It would be really devastating to like the entire area if we were to suddenly lose all these animals to one of these fungal epidemics. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, that that's a very important thing to do. I mean, it, growing up, I had a, um, a pet newt, mm-hmm. fire belly newt. I think it was a Japanese fire belly newt, Ermi. He lived for like 15 years, RIP, to the Toxic Explorer. Sad day, you can't import those guys anymore. But I also understand the importance yeah. of, you know, preventing that. We need a CDC for uh, animals, <laughs> for amphibians and salamanders. Yeah. That's your new life, Kenny. You're starting the CDC. Breaking. So, breaking yeah, my new lab is really focused on kitchen research. So, w- if you can... This information might be classified, but if you can, what are you looking to research moving forward and where are you going to do that? Yeah. I mean, it's not classified. It's just very much in development. Okay. I'm still developing all my ideas, but the general idea is looking at the of Kitrid and how it's affecting kind of ecosystem function of tadpoles specifically. Okay. And... My plan is to do it in Peru because that's where my advisor does a lot of his research and we have a lot of good infrastructure kind of set up there to facilitate research and Kitrid's a really big problem in Peru. Peru is one of those areas where there's been these kind of mass declines all along the Andes and you've had these kind of whole populations going extinct in different areas and that. <laughs> have you started your research in, in that in in that place? No, no, I haven't been there yet. I'm going to be going in August. Yeah, that is exciting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, Max, do you have anything you want to say? Um, I just wanted to ask you when, uh, so, Ken, Kenrick? Ken, Kenny, Max. Yeah, oh, Ken, Ken, is it? no, it's Kendrick <laughs> Salamandar, actually. Um, that's his name? That's his rap name. No, the, uh, the fungus. <laughs> oh, Kittrick. Kittrick. I'm sorry. Oh. I apologize. <laughs> Kenny Kittrick. Oh, uh, yeah. The Mar. Uh, <laughs> All right, go ahead. When, uh, when did that first pop up? Uh, not for salamanders, but for the tadpoles. What's that? So that's a really good question. Um, and just as a clarification, it doesn't kill tadpoles. It just kind of like degrades tadpole mouth parts sometimes in some species. 
it's the adult frog that's really killing a lot of. Mm. Um, but yeah, the question of when it popped up is much more complicated than you may have thought. Uh, we're, we're not entirely sure. Uh, and it's popped up in a ton of different places at different times, and there have been multiple kind of sweeping down different areas. Um, but we first really started to kind of notice it in the 90s. Mm. And a lot of that was in Costa Rica, where this group that's um, Karen Lips is really famous for this. She kind of just followed this epidemic front of Kittred kind of along Panama, going from east to west, or sorry, west to east mm. along Panama. Mm -hmm. And she was just like watching all these populations just die out wow. as this kind of epidemic swept through. So it's been going on so, for a while now. Yeah, that was in the 90s. But you're still having declines like today and various places. Gotcha, so it's just been ongoing since then. So once you... Yeah, so the interesting part is that a lot of people have been like trying to figure out, hey, where did Kittred come from? How long has it been here? And we're seeing records that date back to like the 1800s where we have these specimens where which we were able to get some Kittred DNA off of from museum collections. Wow. So, yeah, there's some thinking that one of the big things that's happening is you're having a change in Kittred from this endemic disease, which basically just means that it's in the population, it's not killing everyone, and then something is stressing the populations and kind of driving it to a higher level where it's causing an epidemic. Mm -hmm. um, and in animals, those are commonly called epizootics. Uh, so there are some theories that some things are driving kindred to these new epizootics rather than staying as endemics, and that it's just been kind of across the world for a really long time. And it's this endemic disease that now in new environmental conditions is becoming this really big epidemic problem. That's, that's fascinating. I remember... Um... A long time ago, when people thought UV light was uh, was killing amphibians at a, like a no, yeah, that's night. when the whole kind of Kittred thing was first happening. People did not believe that Kittred was killing all of these amphibians. There were tons right. of different theories. UV was one of the biggest ones back then. Right, kind of like cell phone towers and bees, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, we can talk about that <laughs> with a in a future podcast. But um, <laughs> the do, do we think it's environmental conditions are changing and making populations stressed, or do we think that you know? that populations are being newly exposed to chytrid as human beings kind of have transported it around? Because I know yeah. we have, um, and we are obviously making efforts to prevent doing that more, but is that really what's causing a widespread global-scale problem with it? Or Yeah. That's the thing with chytrid, we don't really know yet. We have all this different evidence that points in like various different directions. So we do have evidence that we have these epidemic waves in places where Kittred theoretically wasn't before. So places like Panama, where we have this wave that moves all the way down Panama, and you also see that when you look at the genetics of the disease itself, you have more diversity up in the north, like going into California, than you do kind of throughout Panama. So there, it really looks like you have this kind of sweep down from California into Panama as the disease itself moved. 
But we also have this other areas where we have just this really long lineages of the disease where that theory doesn't really hold up as well in different areas. So it's, I think it's, I think it's likely that there are multiple things going on there, but we really just don't know enough yet. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to be done in the future. That is very interesting. And when you solve the solution or when you get your research done, we will have you back on the podcast. You got to earn it. You got to earn your way back. We know you can do it. (laughs) All right, Kenny, if you want to be found, where can people find you perhaps on Twitter? Or social media in general. Uh, What's my username? I I think it's at Kanderson624, Kanderson624. I would, I would, uh, I would encourage anybody interested in these issues to kind of follow the man, the man himself on the, the, the edge of, of the Jesus, the breaking edge of research moving forward in this issue. Kenny, uh, we really appreciate you coming on and we hope you had a good time talking with us because I'm sure we all enjoyed it. Um, I'm excited to see the next interviews you guys do. Oh, you should be. (laughs) To anybody listening, I hope you also enjoyed the podcast. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or through email. Um, If you need any resources or you just want to chat or you have questions you want answered, you can reach out to us or perhaps Kenny on Twitter. Um, Please. If you're on Facebook, I can also see them and answer them, though. Oh well, yeah. But do you want a bunch of you want a bunch of fans, fan girls reaching out on, on Facebook? <laughs> yes, I mean, he does. No, <laughs> you're a married man, Kenny. I don't know oh, if you should bring in that much attention to yourself. Um, hey, I actually I pay attention to my privacy settings on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I do too, believe it or not. Anyway, <laughs> so if you have any questions, you need resources, you want something answered, or anything like that. Reach out to us. We'll get back to you, or maybe we'll talk about it on a future episode. Um, Please, if you found us on iTunes or Spotify or something like that, rate and review. That'll help us kind of get noticed and spread. And that way we can actually have kind of a reputation to allow us to contact other scientists, authors, and professionals and get information from them. So... Ah, I mean, I'm a mouse milker. That's that's my reputation. All right, Drink so every day. we want to thank Kenny for coming on. Thank you, Kenny. Uh, You're the man. Glad to have you on. Thank Look you. forward to seeing you again on the show. I'd like to thank our co-host, Randall, for doing his job to a T. Well, thank you. Uh, thank Max, you. the man with the computer, taking care of business. Good to be here. And we'd also have, like to have a shout-out for our sound man and audio tech, the man upstairs, Justin McDonald. What up, Justin? Justin. All right, so we hope to hear that you guys tuned in next week. All right, cut the audio, keep them on the line.